You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So the topic we are looking at today is Adam and Eve, why they matter. Let's begin with just a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the word of God, for all the truth it contains, Lord, and ultimately that it points us towards your son, Jesus. We pray that our relationship with him would be enriched, Father, that we would grow deeper in that relationship and that he would get the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a a follow-up to the talk I did with you on our Zoom Sunday morning service. This will be a slightly expanded teaching as we promised would uh, come to you shortly. And again, I know it's a very unusual way to be doing this, but we are making the best of what we have at the moment. So we are looking at the question of Adam and Eve. Now, as I said before, this is actually, I believe, an extremely important topic, one that is so often neglected by today's theologians. And there's a few reasons for this that I've discovered. One is usually because uh, people do not want to steer into the muddy waters of the creation evolution debate. Maybe they don't feel like they're equipped enough to be able to engage these arguments. It may cause controversy in the church body. So they just sort of sidestep it. And to a certain extent, I can understand that. But I do believe it kind of comes back to bite you when you do do that. However, there is another reason, and that is simply because, as far as the Adam and Eve topic is concerned, people just have not really thought through the implications of what it means for denying a historical Adam and Eve, and hopefully today we can look at that a little bit. We are not going to be looking at some of the scientific elements uh, involved with a study on Adam and Eve. We're really going to focus on specifically what does the Bible, the scriptural text, say about Adam and Eve. Because there are some fascinating developments in the field of genetics that are relevant to this topic that they would sort of derail us a little bit if we get into them. So we're, we're sticking clearly to the biblical text this morning. Now, The concept of Adam and Eve does have huge implications in two main areas, and I hopefully want to demonstrate those to you this morning. The first area is in the subject of theology, not surprisingly, and the second is history. We will briefly look at the second one. Now, this is a slightly longer version than we did before. It might be a little familiar with you from what we covered, but I'm hoping we can go into this in a bit more depth now. So the theological issues. Now, you may or may not be aware that Adam and Eve are in fact pivotal to a correct and consistent understanding of the gospel. This is why I'm always so amazed when I, when I see so many Christians and Christian theologians who are maybe a little too blasé, they act a bit casual about this topic, many to sort of happy to leave it as a grey area or to even say that they're, they're happy with it being a literary metaphor, the story of Adam and Eve, a poetic way of explaining how the world got like it is and uh, uh, numerous other ways they get around it. Now, this is unfortunate because there's a big problem with this. Let me read to you a quote from someone who does understand this issue. He is head of the American Atheists. His name is Frank Zindler. And he he said this quote during a debate with the Christian apologist William Lane Craig. He said this, The most devastating thing that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know that Adam and Eve were never real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there is no need for salvation. If there is no need for salvation, there is no need for a saviour. And I submit that puts Jesus into the ranks of the unemployed. 
very, very observant quote. And I believe he's being quite logically consistent there. And, he, and he's zeroed in on the crux of the matter here. If Adam and Eve and sin and the fall are not real events in history, then everything that Jesus came to do seems to unravel fairly quickly. And as he, he sort of eloquently phrases it there, puts Jesus into the ranks of the unemployed. This is something that the church needs to stand up against and defend because Jesus Christ is our saviour, he's our Lord, and we know what he did for this world. So we need to speak about these issues. It is a big issue theologically, make no mistake about it. Now, unfortunately, the number of evangelical scholars who, who are questioning the historicity of the Adam and Eve account is steadily growing. So I, we want to have some clarity on this issue and hopefully we can just provide or whet your appetite a little bit as we look at the biblical text right now. Now, we, we want to try and demonstrate why this issue is a serious one, a little bit more serious than people often realised. Now, let me make an observation. You may be aware of this. You may not have noticed it. But every time the Apostle Paul, so that's that's the Apostle Paul, one of the, the premier theologians of the New Testament, and he writes, gives us the book of Romans and so many books of the New Testament with the deep theology that he expounds in them. When he wants to explain a serious foundational piece of theology, such as the origin of death, the origin of sin, the fall of man, justification by faith and the future resurrection and glorification of believers, all things that we have to admit are not in any way secondary concerns for the Christian. Whenever he expounds on these things, he uses Adam and Eve to build the theology. Now that should tell us something about the importance of what we're talking about here this morning. The Apostle Paul builds his theology of the death, sin, the fall, justification and resurrection on Adam and Eve. Let's have a look at this. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 verse 12 and this whole section in Romans comes back to this issue again and again. Let's read the text. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that the reference to sin here is, is again, assuming the truth of the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. This is obvious because he goes on to, to quote the one man. This is clearly pointing back to the first sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, Okay, indicating that Paul obviously understood this to be historical. He continues in Romans 5.14, he says, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of of Moses. Now, no one doubts that the time of Moses is a real historical time, and it's used in uh, conjunction here with the phrase the time of Adam. So we are not at liberty to say that the time of Adam is not a real time period where the time of Moses is. We have to take them both to be historical and death reigned because of the sin in the time of Adam to the time of Moses in that sense. And pivotally, we see Paul here making this connection. Sin is connected to Adam which now becomes the historical foundation for the solution to sin, which is offered in Christ Jesus. This is the argument he's making. And he goes on in Romans chapter 5, verse 15, he writes this. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You see, he references, he even goes on, he references the ensuing judgment that God issued after the fall of man. It, the judgment in Romans 5.16, he says the judgment following one trespass, that's Adam's trespass, brought condemnation. This was the curse on creation and man. Dying you will die was remembered back from Genesis chapter 3. He goes on, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And let's read verses 17 and 18 of Romans chapter 5. 
For by, for if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. You see, his point is made in the contrast that one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, and that by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And this is referring to Jesus Christ, because what does it say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is what we must understand. If Paul is basing his argument for justification by faith on the reality of Adam's sin in Genesis, then it must be integral to the entire gospel narrative, which is expounded throughout the whole of the Bible. Surely logic entails that if Adam is not in fact a real person, then there is no need for a real person to die for his mythical sin. If Adam was not historical, Paul's argument collapses here because he links Adam and Jesus together. So it's not just justification by faith. Also, you see him doing this when he's teaching on the resurrection. And the resurrection is a pivotal doctrine. It's our hope, our glory, that blessed hope that we wait for when we are given our glorified resurrected bodies and we see the Lord face to face. We see him like he is. It's, it's the hope of the Christian. It's not a secondary doctrine. What does he do in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 and 22? Listen to this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And he goes on in verse 45, he writes this. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man became a life-giving spirit. And notice he, he calls Adam the first man. This is explicitly confirming the Genesis account that Adam was the first ever human. There was not a line of pre-existing soulless hominoids, as some people teach, that became human when, when God suddenly chose one and breathed into him his spirit. That's not what the text says. The first man, Adam. He goes on and he continues, The first man was from the earth. This is in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-seven. A man of dust. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven confirming the Genesis account that Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. Again, he, he's just, he clearly takes this as historical and he's using it to build and base his doctrine upon. The first Adam was created innocent and perfect, and he was given responsibility over humanity. And it was through his one act of a disobedience that sin and death entered the world. We looked at that in Romans 5.12. Yet the good news is that there is another who has come, and he is here called the last Adam. And this Adam is perfect innocent and holy and he has become the new head of humanity and he came to die in our place on the cross tasting death for everyone it says in hebrews 2 9 it is because of his work on the cross the fact that he rose again defeated death once and for all that through him all will be made alive 1 corinthians 15 22 and we can now rejoice with the apostle paul as he concludes his message about the last adam where he says oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I would say that in no way 
can either of these truths be considered a secondary issue? And of course, another way to look at this is the real test for us as Christians is what did Jesus think about this issue? There is ample evidence from the New Testament that Jesus believed the book of Genesis to be historically true. On many occasions, he references events from the early chapters of Genesis, such as the flood of Noah in Matthew 24 and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Luke 17. And one key text that we'll read now and look at in a bit more depth is Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. The context is that Jesus is involved in a dispute with the Pharisees over the, the legality of divorce. And he says this in the, in the pertinent verses, 4 to 6, chapter 19 of Matthew. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, we won't get into the issue of divorce and remarriage here, but but I want to simply note that in building his case concerning divorce and marriage upon, he quotes both Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He's making his theological argument based on the first marriage of Adam and Eve recorded in the book of Genesis. And then we also have that famous phrase that you hear at weddings all over the world today, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is, again, referring to the doctrine of one flesh, the, the teaching of Christian marriage, and it is all based upon the Adam and Eve account. So this this really, if we remove the historicity of this account, we do ourselves a disservice and I believe we, we undermine a lot of our theology that we look at, particularly regarding Christian marriage. So these are just a couple, and we could do many more of these, these are a couple of the theological issues that come up surrounding the, the topic of Adam and Eve. Let me just look at a historical issue briefly. You see, the biblical worldview, it's not just a set of metaphysical ideas. It's not just a system of moralistic teaching. It is a reality that is rooted in world history. It is a worldview that has left its fingerprints all over this globe and all through the annals of history because Jesus entered into history. Now, if we believe that Adam and Eve are not real people or that they evolved from a, from a lineage of ape-like creatures and they became human only when God breathed the soul into them. Like I said, we've seen this create some theological problems. It also creates some historical problems to us too. One of the best ways for, for making an argument for historicity is the use of genealogies. The whole purpose of a genealogy is to trace a person's historical lineage. And if a genealogy was populated with mythical or symbolic figures, the whole thing becomes absolutely meaningless. And of course, we have a lot of genealogies in the Bible. Let's look at a couple. In 1 Chronicles chapter 1, in fact, for, for the first nine chapters of the book of 1 Chronicles, we have nine chapters of geneal genealogical records. We go through some of the main characters in the Old Testament, Noah and his sons, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, up to King David. All of these people, no one doubts their historicity. No, no uh, evangelical people, scholars, I know there are some liberal critics who would, but historically these are real people. And how does this genealogy start? Look at the first verse, 1 Chronicles 1, verse 1. It starts, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All of these people come from Adam. If you remove Adam, the whole thing falls apart. And then, really as if to drive this point home, we get to the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. 
Verse 23 says, When he begun his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And then in verse 38, it traces it all the way back, and it says, The son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You see, and this is so important because it's identifying Jesus with humanity. And Jesus had to be, yes, he had to be fully divine, but also fully human in that sense, because we know that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So this is very, very important historically and theologically. And I don't really know how else the Bible could make it clear that Adam and Eve were supposed to be real historical people. They were, in fact, the first man and woman on this earth. So these issues, these ramifications are huge. It's an amazing topic to study. Uh, I wish I could share with you uh, longer on this issue, but I'm hoping today that this has whet your appetite. If you do want to search this out a little bit more, this teaching has actually been based upon a book that I wrote, uh, a small book by, published by Day One Publishers, and it's called What Does the Bible Really Say About Adam and Eve? And in this book, we go into the creation account of Adam and Eve, and we look at the, the writing of the New Testament uh, and just explain some of these things in a little bit more depth than we've been able to do this morning. But I hope, I hope this uh, has been uh, edifying for you and you enjoyed this and it's been great. Thanks for having me. Uh, see you again soon. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.